Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.58 G2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. What's up, Jeff? Normally, we'd have a whole bunch for just you and I to talk about, but guess what? We got too many guests, not enough time, so let's get to it. We always love to get some time with TV personality, writer, uh, now Emmy Award winner. My goodness, Doug, you do so many things. You, By the way, you did play baseball for a part of your life, too, especially here in Philadelphia. Doug Glanville, thank you for joining us, and thanks for always giving us a little bit of time. Yeah, it's great to be on The Hardest Sport. It's always a pleasure. Deep thought, you know, perspective guardians of the game so yeah it's a thrill to be here man well I'm, i might have to just clip that right there and say we're done that's it thanks for the <laughs> jason's done for the day i'm done for the day <laughs> let's get to it this must be uh, a special time of year for you baseball is underway um i know you don't go out there and throw the uniform on every day but how much do you love this time of year Oh, I love it. And not only just that, it's become part of my soul. You know, you grow up and you know that feeling. The spring comes along and growing up in New Jersey, I had the four seasons. So winter, I was inside playing Stratomatic or something with my brother. And then all of a sudden, you know, that those birds start chirping and it just makes sense. You know, baseball is around the corner and I, I love, you know, checking out spring training and Back then, looking in the paper, you'd see like a little line score, and it was like exciting. Wow, the Phillies played the Twins, you know. So, um, but you know, slowly year after year, as a fan, that transitioned to being, a, you know, a player in college and a professional, and that, I never lost that feeling. And, and to this day, years outside of playing the game, you know, I hear the birds, I smell the air, I'm just like spring. You know, it's all, it's like that feeling of rebirth, and baseball is exactly what uh, I expect at this time because it's uh, what I love. So I'm, I'm thrilled, and the lockout all those things i was like all right we got to get this going right <laughs> so uh but i'm busy I'm, I'm enjoying what i'm doing and so much of it revolves around baseball now, and you're still watching the games i was following your twitter feed the other night uh we had a situation here in philly one of our young players alec bohm had three errors and mouthed some words that he regretted afterwards but he owned up to it and <laughs> he stood there and he took it he didn't deny it and i saw you tweet that after the Philly fans gave him a standing ovation coming up next, you always found the Philly fans to be straightforward. They care. If you treat the fans with respect and play hard every day, they'll let you know when you fall short, but also let you know when you stand tall. Tell me what that watching that situation with Alec Bohm was as a microcosm for you as somebody who played in this city for these fans. Well, I, I saw an opportunity and I think um, I think it turned out fairly well. But, you know, here's a fairly young player, you know, who uh, is, is learning to navigate the professional life, not just, you know, Philadelphia, but this reality that when you play every day, you, you have to respond and answer to, you know, the questions and the media and your coach. And there's a whole level of accountability that can be very new, especially when you get to the big leagues fairly quickly. Um, you know, I, I took a long time. I was a first round draft pick and I started learning about this when I was in college because just getting recruited or scouts or all that, navigating all that is, was challenging because I just remember being 20 years old and like, wow, people are writing about me and they've never spoken to me before. You know, was, that was like mind blowing back then. Now, obviously today it's different with social media, but you still have that, you know, give and take. And, you know, there would be cities like New York or Philly or Boston that had, you know, much more of a robust media presence. Then we'd go to Montreal back in the day and there'd be one reporter and it was a whole different mindset. You were almost like, wait a minute, are we invisible? <laughs> you know, like, so I think it's 
it's a very good, if I'm in the PR department or the community relations in the Phillies, right now I'm clipping off that experience of, of Alex and finding a way to use that as, as teaching moments about, you know, fans and embracing, because I had a great time in Philly. You know, I, I mean, I wish we won more, certainly, but we do I, too, you know, but we love yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, I didn't come at the right time or whatever it was, but I also recognized that I was a Philly fan growing up. So I know what it is to actually be a Philly fan. <laughs> so, so I know the feelings and, and fine. They were great in the 70s and, and 1980, of course. So playing for me was just like, hey, it was just a transition from being a fan, just being a fan in uniform. So I understand that, you know, playing hard. And, and I had a lot of mentors growing up, like coming up in the system, Sean Dunstan, guys who played hard. And I started to realize like, there's no excuse. I mean, there's no excuse. You could, you, you know, all the talent in the world. But if you don't embrace that and figure out that, you know, these things are, as Sean Dunson say, it doesn't cost anything to hustle, right? <laughs> it's free. <laughs> so, um, so I, I think that's important. And the sooner you learn that, the, the better you are at kind of figuring out how to embrace it in a way, because Philly fans, you know, they're, they know, they know their stuff. You know, they, they, they're coming from a place of knowledge. I mean, I remember a fan heckling me about my thesis and, and senior thesis from college <laughs> about, and I think we talked about this last time, but I'm going to repeat it again. So I have a, you know, I'm replacing Lenny Dykstra, who's a legend and nails and you know whatever he all that and you know I'm, I'm i'm the philly guy i went to college there new jersey philly fan but i was terrible in the first month of the season right so so they they someone did the research and found out that i did a paper on building a stadium at 30th street station for my senior design project at penn and so some fan figured it out and when i was hitting you know 180 i heard in the outfield some guy yelling hey glanville why don't you build a stadium you can hit in? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I was like, okay, that's, that's actually really good. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I just, you just got to embrace it. You're going to get called out. And, but if, you know, you play with your heart on your sleeve, you play hard, everybody's cool, you know, I mean, and I had a cool relationship and, and look, they booed me when I misread the ball on Eric Milton's possible no hitter. And it was terrible. I felt bad. I got booed. I got cheered when I almost got, I got knocked on my back on a pitch at my head during a bunt and, I got the bunt down and we won the game and, and they were on me, but you know, it was like forgotten tomorrow. You know, I, I mean, I felt, felt bad and it bothered me for sure, but I also knew like, yeah, I did mess that play up. <laughs> you know, so, um, so, you know, it's, it's, you gotta be fair. And, and I think they, uh, they, they to me raised the bar uh, and make you accountable, but also like, I, I gotta play, I gotta play my, my A game every day. And if they do that, you'll have a good relationship with them. You know, you mentioned Sean Dunstan. What, how important is it? for a young player to have mentors, not only to learn how to play the game right, but but how to deal with the media and how to deal with all the things that come with being a professional. Uh, critical. I mean, that's just one word that comes to mind. I can't imagine navigating any of this without mentors and players that care and are older and experienced and kind of want to take the time to do what is sort of traditional in baseball is that put be part of the mentorship. And I had plenty of guys like that and sometimes unexpected places. And one direct example with Chase Utley was Mike Morgan, who's a longtime pitcher for a lot of teams, was at the Cubs. And I had a great spring training, but I had options left and they sent me down. And I was upset, but I was like, okay, I'm going to do my work in AAA. And Morgan pulled me aside and said, look, we saw you play. You know, we know you're a big leaguer. You'll be here in no time. Just do the same thing 
everything, work hard, and you'll be right back here. And that's what Morgan said. Now, it's not a guy I talk to every day, but it comes from anywhere. And then years later, when Chase Utley didn't make the team, I said the exact same thing to him and just saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm now the 25th man on the roster now, and my time is limited. I hope to play a little longer, but you're going to be, you're going to have this spot soon and just do what you're doing, you know? So, you know, you just pass it on. And, and sometimes, <clears throat> Susie, sometimes when it's hard, you know, family, all the things you're going through, it's great to have someone to talk to that's been there and knows that experience. And, and for there, just makes it a lot easier and you gain a perspective that really helps you have longevity in the game. You know, you meant, mentioned mentors and trailblazers. The reason we wanted to have you on this time, obviously we'll talk anything with you anytime. Uh, it's Jackie Robinson Day. And you are a man who has been linked to him through the work you've been able to do. Last year, we saw you as the narrator of a 30-minute special. We are all Jackie looking at the impact that he had. I, w- I was struck in the trailer, you started by saying, what do you think when you hear the name Jackie Robinson? And you left it to people to decide. We wanted to start by posing that question to you. What do you think? Yeah, well, it's funny because I've asked that question. I'm doing the UCLA Stanford game on Friday where he went to college and I asked uh, some of the young players that and I like their answers, but um, I think of change. I think of impact. I think of equality. I think of passion. And you talk about mentorship for sure. Just setting this tone, pioneer, innovator, and I mean, just relentless, relentless. And, and so I guess my context has evolved as well because now, you know, as a father, husband, and then got, getting to know the family, I started to see this other side about, you know, Sharon Robinson, his daughter, who I've become friends with over the years and just seeing that, you know, he had this other component to his life that become more and more open about being a family man and just really doing what he did. And he, he, he was, he struggled at times because he had to go out to these places and he felt compelled to be involved, not just when he was playing, but even more so afterwards. So he traveled a lot and he was chair of the NAACP and he was on the board. He did all these things that took a lot of time away from his, his family, his own family. But he also saw the community, the world as part of his family. And he wanted that family to love each other, to respect each other, and to embrace equality. And that's what I love about baseball or sports in general, baseball in particular, is that, you know, you have this everyday experience in baseball and you're always reinforcing the importance of teamwork every day. You have a bad day, but you have to figure it out every single day as a team from all over the world. These players are coming from. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. And this tapestry also has to come together and uphold the rules of the game, which is really so the foundation of you think of Jackie Robinson, if it's really fair and you want to have a game that's of integrity, you have to apply those rules across the board evenly to everybody. And that's a pretty good lesson for larger society. Like, I don't care where you're coming from. Here are the rules and we got to preserve this. And uh, and so Jackie sustains for me in so many ways because I, you know, I watched my daughter, uh, you know, steal all these bases in Little League a few years ago. And, and it's because we saw 42 and she's like, yeah, that, you know, I'm Jackie Robinson. Like, that's what I'm, that's what I'm, he's, she wasn't imitating me. Like, she was, <laughs> you know, I was like all old dinosaur retired guy. So she was like, Jackie's bouncing around. So yeah. um, I just, she does you know, realize you're younger than him, right? Yeah, I, I don't know if she, she, Jackie's still around as far as she's concerned. So, 
So, um, yeah, he's, um, but yeah, there's, I don't, there's no one word. There is one word, but there's so many of them which showed how versatile he was. How, how important is it that, that baseball honor Jackie Robinson and what he went through the whole experience? Because we talked to Keyshawn Johnson a couple of months ago about the struggle with the NFL and not recognizing pioneers in their league, the way that major league baseball is. How important is it to you and, and, to, and to the league and to society to, to recognize Jackie Robinson and not not just let it go away. Oh, extremely important. Extremely. And partly because, I mean, when you talk about Pioneer, uh, when he integrated baseball, this was before the military. I mean, this was the first real major American institution that integrated. And he was blazing a trail on so many levels. But because he was such a transcendent figure, this spilled into everything in, in our world. And, and it was a time where baseball really became a proxy for American wish and hope. Like this idea that, you know, we have tenants that we're trying to live up to and we the people and all the and and he became a real tangible real life example through our national pastime and so you know we should, it's a great american story one of the greatest american stories about someone who still believes no matter fighting going through all the things he said no 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 there's a better day here there's a future here and we have to live up to these things and yes i'm going through all these things but i'm looking ahead and that's something you know that you gain from so many people who haven't had freedoms. That's why we learn so much from people that don't have the privilege to be able to be free or be, because you start to see like, wow, this, these, these are people willing to die, fight, whatever it takes, because it's that important. And he, and so Robinson didn't let us take it for granted as, as a man of color and all the experiences he went through. So that example should be part of everything, you know, it's because it really sums up American spirit, you know, whether revolutionary wars, all the things we've done to fight for independence. And, and he became Became this microcosm of it. And and I learned when I covered the game in Cuba in, I think it was 2016, and Jack, you know, President Obama brought the Robinson family, well, at least the, the daughter and son, uh, daughter and, and Rachel. And so Sharon and Rachel came on Air Force One to Cuba. And I asked them, like, well, why did you do that? And Robinson had spring training in Havana, Cuba. That was in 1947, the year he broke in. And there was, it was a nightmare for the Dodgers with black players in Florida the year before. So they were like, ah, you know, and Cuba, you know, they were cooler with this whole racial dynamic, certainly more so than the U.S. was at the time. And and Robinson, you know, and did this whole experience with Havana. And so I got to sit down with Rachel Robinson and, and talk about this legacy. So I found out then this he was an international color line. You know, this Panamanian, we played exhibition games in Cuba. They were all like wait, watching to see what was going to happen to Jackie Robinson in America. And it, and it opened up the door, for, you know, when he crossed this the really true color line, really color wall and changed uh you know, change America's thinking. So I, I just think his story is the, the challenge is sustainability, right? Pat, and for me, it's going to the young people, just like we talked about mentorship. You got to keep passing that on and reinvent it in different ways to resonate with that generation, social media and all these, and then they'll own it because it's really appealing. I mean, I interviewed three players at UCLA in for getting ready for the game, two of which are Eric Karras's sons. And the other player, they all said the same thing. They did a project on Jackie in second and fourth grade. <laughs> and I mean, and they all did it and they, they all were, and they saw themselves as Jackie Robinson, black, white, whatever. They just saw that. And that relatability to me is what will keep him and his story enduring. Yeah. To that end, I, I've seen, you know, the movie 42 is, yeah. is something that you see teenagers of this generation relate to. And, and so continuing to find different ways to tell that story is so important because I remember sitting there with my young son after the game and he was kind of shaken by the movie. And, 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 
as a Philadelphian, he was a little disturbed by it because we all know that the history of what happened when he came to Philadelphia. But are there are there different ways now that we can keep it fresh in, in addition to just doing Jackie Robinson Day? Absolutely. You know, I mean, well, baseball as a sport, you know, has to weigh that. But there's so many historians. There's a, a new book out called True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson. There's so many ways to revisit it. And to some degree, your future does hinge on the reinterpretation of the past. Every generation has the right, the power to look back and figure out, all right, how what are we learning from, from this history? But also go back and look at it differently because there's so many stones we didn't turn over. And to your point about, yeah, there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations that you know, when you want to make someone more palatable or you kind of strip away some of the things because it's uncomfortable, whether it's Ben Chapman in Philly. But just to give you a direct example, uh, my my great aunts and uncles on my mom's side, they ultimately kind of, my their great migration was to Philadelphia and they lived in the north side, north you know, North Philly. And and so when I, growing up and visiting them, we were in Philly, you know, and I was a Philly fan and I didn't learn until I got traded to Philly and was a starter that my family in North Philly, they loved the Phillies until Ben Chapman, <laughs> until and like they, they were like Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. And then they saw this happen and they they saw how Philly waited 10 years to get a, a first black player and they were completely turned off and they still love baseball because Jackie and the pioneers that came after him, but they just didn't want any part of it. And so fast forward to 1997 when I got traded to the Phillies and my aunt Tank, that was her nickname, 1998, um, starting lineup. She's like, okay, now I'm going to come back. It took that long. And I think we underestimate the pain because we want to, it's uncomfortable. So we want to move it over. Then people just suffer because they don't share that story. And Philly, to their credit, as a city apologized to Jackie. Uh, I, that's important because that's restorative. So we can't underestimate that when we try to make it safe and comfortable, we kind of lose, you're trading something valuable, not only the lesson, but people who have actually been through it that are still open to forgiveness, that are still open because they love the game so much. They love Jackie Robinson's contribution so much, and they know it's not easy and not supposed to be easy. So that is the the gift that he can keep giving. And to me, it's just reinventing and, and retelling his story. Well, and also Jackie's openness to that forgiveness, because he didn't, he was not stopped by the treatment that he had. He, he may have been offended by it, upset by it, but it did not stop him from going. And you know, I wish we could have seen him in this time because I, I saw you say that uh, Jackie was a prolific letter writer to start, but he really was viral before there was viral, even just with traditional media outlets. I'm wondering what Jackie Robinson in the age of social media would have been like using the platforms that he could have at his fingertips to really drive a message that he was able to drive when there wasn't all of these avenues. He would have been relentless on social media. I mean, he really would have been tweeting every five seconds, calling stuff out. And, you know, so talk about the letters, the book called First Class Citizenship. And it's it's typed letters just reprinted. To, and this man wrote everybody. I mean, it's very much like Alexander Hamilton for Hamilton fans. Like I wrote my way out, like he wrote, 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 and he wrote letters to presidential candidates. And he called people out. Malcolm X, he called out Martin Luther King, he was just like, look, you got to be about this equality and we can't ever get off, let off this accelerator. So he did this. And, you know, one letter to Dwight Eisenhower, he said, I've, I have been more aggressive since I stopped playing baseball. <laughs> so you could imagine you watch him on the base path. Can you imagine? But it was true. He was marching in the streets, taking everybody on Gerald Ford, Nixon, JFK. I mean, he just never stopped, never stopped. 
And so what he was able to accomplish by being passed in his 50s uh, is unbelievable in that short period of time. And to the point where you integrated schools years later, civil rights, were, they were looking to Jackie's inspiration from the 40s because that's how long and how much he inspired that generation. Remember, Martin Luther King Jr. was 18 when Jackie Robinson broke into the big leagues. He was a junior, by the way, he was a junior at 18 in college, but 18 years old. So he was a mentor. And so Robinson would be in everybody's face. Now, I don't, the politics of today, would probably make it, you know, you know, all the things like I'm sure he would have supported Colin Kaepernick, for example, because he said openly back in the day that he was upset at the flag. <clears throat> he was upset at the symbolism when you're not living up to the tenets of great American hope. So he called that out, too. So how would that have been taken? Probably the way it was taken today would be kind of divisive in some ways. But he he was always consistent that it was about equality and it wasn't just for black people. It was for everyone. He wanted everyone to enjoy the equal treatment under the umbrella of America. And and therefore, that message was really universal. And he, he shunned the idea that I'm just trying to do this for some superior stance. I wanted to elevate everyone in this common shared humanity. And he was consistent. And it wasn't just in baseball. I mean, you did a recent um, uh, uh, video where you, you did commentary about when he's the, him stealing home in the World Series. And one of the things that you pointed out was the other things that he did. It wasn't just about baseball. It was what he did off the diamond, that he was a pioneer as the first black vice president of a major American corporation and of a, a bank in Harlem and the first black nationally syndicated columnist. What does that mean as, as somebody that's a writer like you? Uh, what does it mean for him to have pioneered in other areas? And what does it mean to society? Never just stick to sports. <laughs> and I mean, you know, because when you see the power of sport and how it can transcend and, and not only and amplify the message of equality and hope and fairness and equity and things that Jackie Robinson stood for and fought for, then you see that it doesn't matter. Baseball is just sort of a, you know, it, it's like a platform, but it's, it leads to all these other possibilities. It's an example of American resourcefulness and business and, and care and community, but that exists everywhere. And that, and that you can kind of photocopy those lessons from sport and move it right to something else. And he did just that. He didn't stop. He, he kept the same message over and over how he approached the game. That's how he approached, you know, everything else when he was fighting for equality. I think of, you know, Sharon Robinson. Robinson, I'm going to paraphrase, but I wrote an ESPN.com article that's coming out in a couple of days. And I, I take verbatim the back cover of one of her books, Stealing Home About Family. And in a nutshell, it, it talks about how when she was a kid, they would ski, they would ice skate on a pond in the, on their property. And, it, and they had to determine if it was frozen or not. And the man that went out there to test that was Jackie Robinson. I think he brought a broomstick out there to go down the lawn. And it would do too loose. He'd back up and he'd go back out. And then he'd say, go get your skates. And that's what he would do every winter. But here's the rub. Man couldn't swim. Couldn't swim. And so Sharon writes this beautifully because she's like, that's exactly what he did for America. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what he was going to fall through the ice or get shot or whatever's going to happen. But he did it anyway. And he believed that he kept going and kept going. And he'd back off if he needed to. And eventually that pond was frozen and he walked right into the Hall of Fame. But then he didn't stop there because once it was frozen, he was trying to get ponds for everybody. And that's, you know, Jackie Robinson just, you know, was very much about that for a better America. And for those reasons, you know, as we care about our country and our, you know, and its tenants, I think it, it will continue that way. We just got to keep telling the story. You've talked about pawns for everybody. I did want to close on something that's a little more than baseball. We've talked to Jesse Washington about this. Brian Flores in the NFL with what he's done, not taking the settlement so that he had to sign an NDA and really taking on the hiring practices he now 
has additional coaches joining him. Um, as I joked with Jesse, they, I, it looks like they picked the wrong man who has lots of receipts. Can you talk <laughs> about through the eyes of, of Jackie Robinson, what he did, how you think Brian Flores and what he's doing through the court system may be able to bring about some positive change, not only on the field, but throughout society? Yeah, I mean, that, you know, and baseball is not, you know, take a Jackie, you think about collective bargaining. There's so many pioneering uh, moments through those negotiations that benefited larger employment, like, you know, the fine benefit or so many things that the Players Association in labor dispute have come up with things that benefit employment. I think it's the same idea that, you know, Jackie, you know, so many people relate to his story uh, or many other pioneers in different industries to inspire them to take on something, to be like, you know what, uh, this is hard, but Jackie had it harder or many others have it harder. And there's many still trying to break through these doors and ceilings. And so Flores, once again, can set precedent. You know, can really lay it down and make people think about this in a way that would would bring it to question anyone who cares about fairness and just sees that like these are these are former players. These are people who care about the game. They were maybe beloved when they played and and they're knowledgeable clearly and they just need fair opportunity and everybody can relate to that just wanting to be respected wanting to be given a chance and and so yeah Flores I mean it's a hard road it's a hard road because there's a lot of power NFL has a lot of power and influence and legal you know standing and all these things but if nobody if no if nobody does it then nothing changes nothing changes and there was a whole wave of hiring by the way after that whoa we better hire some people so um you know so I I do think that you know you're trying to change things and change is hard. Um, it, it's, it takes time. I mean, I have, I have many incidents where I wrote about things that I went through and some took two years to resolve. And sometimes I look back as like, I wish I spent those two years doing something else, but I, I don't regret it. I just think about how much time it takes to to make change and, and make sure everyone is included. Yeah. One of the things that, that you said about Jackie was you, you mentioned a quote from him, which was, if you want to have the power to change, you must be a decision maker in hiring and corporate policy. Could anything be more true today when, when you're dealing not only with the outside world, but with sports, is, is that we need to have more ownership that looks like society in order to have change? For so many reasons, you know, even the fundamental reason, let's just all be baseball fans here. Don't we want the game to be represented by everyone everywhere? Of course. I mean, that's that's great for the game. <laughs> that's great. I don't care where, where you're coming from. I want fans because I love this game. So even at the fundamental level, we just want that opportunity to look around and say, wow, this is a this is America. This is a, a beautiful tapestry of opportunity and change and stories of people going through wars to get here. All these things have, have been part of what built America. So I think on that level, it's, uh, it's it's more tangible as just a fan of the game. And representation does matter. It's And I think of Jackie Robin, that's an American story that's inspiring. Of course, Black America relates in a direct way, but it's, it's truly cuts through all that because you say America, you think about land of the free and you want to fight for these opportunities. And this is someone who did that, right? He said, no, I care about this country and what it looks like on the other side of my life. Uh, you know, that's a beautiful story. So, so absolutely that, you know, we think about hiring in baseball, the Selig rules and Rooney rules and all these things. And you realize that it's hard to push up against the homogeneity, right? Everybody in the boardroom, when everybody kind of thinks the same, you get the same outcome, you know, it's like, oh, I'm gonna hire my friends and people who had my experience. It may not be like directly like conscious 
subconsciously, oh, they have to be white or they have to be X. But I think that's just a natural thing that starts to happen when you have power. You just reinforce your own power to justify why you're in the position you're in. And it just keeps going. And until you, you know, and that's why you want other people in the room to have other experiences. Because first of all, it not only diversifies the room and the audience and all these things, but it diversifies thought, the, the process of being open to, oh, I can mentor and coach this way because someone has this whole different experience. You, you can't be afraid of that. It makes you better. It exposes you to different ways. And, and that's what I loved about baseball, going to spring training every year and being like, oh, wow, the people are from all over the place. And we get to celebrate this together. I've learned so much from all kinds of players. And I think that's could be great for larger society as well. Well, we in our audience continue to learn so much from you. And we can't thank you enough for the trust you put in us to have these conversations and the time you give us. Uh, we will keep looking out for what you're doing. We will enjoy celebrating Jackie Robinson Day and look for your coverage of the game and look forward to the next time we get you back to talk about this all more. Thanks so much for the time, Doug. Absolutely. Thank you. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Welcome back to the show, part of ESPN's Enterprise Unit. You can catch him often on Outside the Lines, E60, uh, reporter John Barr. John, thanks so much for the time today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. This is a big weekend for you. Uh, on Monday night, you have a new special airing on E60, uh, The Paterno Legacy. Tell us about it. Yeah, well, I guess around midpoint last year, uh, producer Michael Shallow came to me with the idea of revisiting the Jerry Sandusky scandal uh, and, and actually really revisiting Joe Paterno's legacy and, and where it stands today, viewed through the lens of the scandal that led to his downfall uh, back in 2011. And, uh, you know, there's been so much written. There been there was there was the, you know, free report that was commissioned by the school. There were rebuttals to the free report. There were multiple civil and criminal proceedings related to the case. And, you know, my first instinct was, geez, do we really want to get back into those waters? But the more we got into it, the more we realized how much rich detail there was and how the aftershocks of the scandal were still being felt. At the, at the time we started reporting the story, Graham Spanier, the former president, for example, had yet to serve his time in jail. And ultimately, when we wound up when we wound up interviewing him, he was still under home confinement. Uh, you had Jerry Sandusky, who was still trying to work every angle to appeal his uh, ultimate conviction uh, back in 2012. And then you had this dynamic where the winningest coach in major college football history had been essentially erased from any you know, other than his name being on the library, there, there's nothing you can find on the Penn State campus today that speaks to his contributions to that football program where he was employed for 61 years. And, you know, we, I was there when the statue came down. So there was I certainly had a connection there. I did a lot of reporting on the ground when the Penn State scandal broke. And, you know, the more we got into it, the more we realized how much rich detail there was and, and how the school was still kind of grappling with the idea of how to reconcile its past. 
What what was your biggest takeaway about what they were grappling with and how they are going to bring this finally to a conclusion if they can? You know, I don't I think the the position they've arrived at and uh, you know, I can't say I blame the school uh is that they're dealing with it by really not dealing with it. In in February of 2020, the school uh released a statement saying announcing that it had resolved any outstanding issues with the paternal family. At the time, the chairman of the school's board of trustees put out a statement where he made favorable comments about uh, Joe Paterno and the school put out a statement with language that really distanced, distanced itself from the free report, which was the report the school paid for. Uh, you know, but it, it sort of, I guess, in a, in a nod to the critics of the free report, decided to distance itself somewhat from that report. And the, the central findings of that free report, for those who have forgotten, uh, were that uh, senior leaders at Penn State, most notably the former president, Graham Spanier, the former vice president of finance, Gary Schultz, the former athletic director, Tim Curley, all of whom went to jail, and Joe Paterno, who was never charged with anything, those four men were part of this effort to conceal Sandusky's crimes in the interest of protecting the reputation of the school. Uh, so you had this situation in February of 2020 where the school distanced itself from those findings, uh, but that was it. And there was really never any you know, tangible way that the school paid tribute to Joe Paterno. I'm not suggesting there should be. But there are still a number of people, there's a, there's a very broad swath of the Penn State alumni, mostly older, who believe the school should acknowledge him in some way, shape, or form. You mentioned the Paterno family in 2020, them sort of making up, but it, it didn't seem like Jay felt they all made up in the preview teaser. Can you talk about how the family feels about this all from your conversations? Yeah, so Joe Paterno had five kids, and... You know, the interesting thing is the paternal family is still very much a part of that state college and Penn State community. Jay Paterno is on the board of trustees. Uh, Mary Kay, his older sister, uh, has a job with the College of uh, Liberal Arts. And Sue Paterno, who is now 82, remains a very active uh, fundraiser for Penn State University to this day. And she works for a variety of causes, the fawn, the famous, you know, dance uh, fundraiser that the school has each year, uh, also the, the food bank. So the school, the, the paternal family is still very much a part of that university. And uh, that, that was interesting to me. Uh, and, and perhaps not surprising, they went there, <laughs> they were raised there, uh, they planted roots there, they raised kids there. So Really, you know, despite the fact that their father had an unceremonious exit from the school and there, there's still some raw feelings related to that, they're still very much connected to the school. You had the opportunity to speak to a, a lot of the people that were firsthand parties in this, including, as you said, people that were convicted of crimes. What was your takeaway from talking to them? And, and do they do they attempt to just say they didn't do anything or do they say, there's an excuse for doing something. How did, how did they handle it? And, and what were your takeaways yeah. from that? It was a mix. So ultimately, four people went to either prison or jail as a result of their roles in the scandal. You know, the most infamous, infamous one being Jerry Sandusky. He's at a low security prison uh, a couple hours from State College. 
Uh, it's essentially a geriatric facility for older male inmates. He's 78. He's not eligible for parole till he's 98. Jerry Sandusky continues to maintain that he's innocent. Uh, he has constructed this, what I like to refer to as a alternate reality in his mind, where all of the men who say that he was that he sexually assaulted them as as boys, that all of them are essentially uh, propagating a lie. Uh, and, you know, his, in his construct, these men were convinced that they were sexually assaulted and opportunistic civil attorneys then latched on and tried to get and in, in many cases did get large uh financial settlements from the university. So that's Sandusky. Former President Graham Spanier remains defiant to this day. He he says there was no effort to conceal. Remember, there was that uh, now infamous shower incident involving former quarterback and former graduate assistant Mike McQuarrie, who came to Joe Paterno in February of 2001 and reported what he'd seen in the showers. There's great debate about just what he told Paterno, uh, but based on the thousands of documents we looked at and in speaking to, you know, dozens of people, uh, it's my belief that that he clearly conveyed to Paterno that something inappropriate of a sexual nature happened. And Paterno said as much to state prosecutors um, when that was then kicked upstairs to the president, Spanier, the vice president, Gary Schultz and the athletic director, Tim Curley. Those three guys came up with a plan of how to handle it. And ultimately, they initially they were talking about reporting it to the proper authorities, the, the Department of Public Welfare. But then they backed off of that and they didn't report it. Graham Why? Spanier, well, Graham Spanier to this day maintains that it's because he never got a report that something of a sexual nature happened. Gary Schultz, the vice president, his position for years was that he thought they did report it, he, you know, but but when confronted with the evidence that they didn't report it, uh, you know, he now expresses regret in, in our interview he, of, of the three individuals we spoke with. Tim Curley declined to speak with us, the former athletic director. But of the three individuals we spoke with, Gary Schultz was really the only one to express real regret that they did not report this incident to the Department of Public Welfare. Graham Spanier to this day maintains that he did not get a report that suggested anything of a sexual nature occurred. Interestingly enough, there was another report back in 1998. We don't even get into this in our story, but there was another report where Sandusky was uh, investigated by the police and ultimately a, a district attorney took a look at it and decided not to file charges. You know, that report was sent to Graham Spanier via email and he he says to this day he doesn't even recall that incident that that would have been when jerry sandusky was the active defensive coordinator for penn state university so in, by all accounts the people we spoke with said graham spanier was a micromanager who's invested in the smallest details of projects around the school so it takes a, a bit of a stretch to believe that he wouldn't be aware that his defensive coordinator was being investigated by the cops for an incident where he was involved in, in, in being in the shower with a minor boy. Um, but there's a lot there. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to catch up with these men uh, years after their, in, um, you know, charges. And in Spaniard's case, it was still really fresh. He had just gotten out of jail and he was still wearing an ankle bracelet because he was on home confinement. 
you know, you mentioned all the different people you spoke to, and we all have friends who either went to Penn State, I have family that went there, I rooted for them growing up. There is, people take sides. If you're either, we Joe should be honored and, and a part of it, or Joe should be exiled. What is his legacy after this piece for you? Well, I, I hope people will come away from this piece thinking uh, we treated him fairly. But I also think that if we did our job, people will come away from this story a little conflicted about how they should feel about Joe Paterno. You're quite right. There are absolutely camps to this day. There's, there are those people who have 409 bumper stickers, those people for whom Joe Paterno was part of their childhood uh you know, the man was there for more than six decades, for goodness sakes, 46 seasons as a head coach. Uh, you know, so he, he influenced generations of players and generations of fans grew up with him as a constant. Uh, but then you have uh, this other collection of people who, you know, as, as you said, believe he should be exiled and that the university should move on. And then there's a, a completely separate group of people for whom he's not even relevant. You know, that's one thing we found on campus. We, we actually found students on campus today who don't know who Joe Paterno is. I was wondering and, that because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do, but I wonder how much kids who came after when the statue was down were 10 years after all of that. How many just don't know about it? They were, you know, what, eight years old? You can find old? them. <laughs> you can absolutely find them. I think about it. If you are a freshman or sophomore at Penn State today, you were probably, what, like eight, nine, ten years old when this scandal happened? And so if you grew up in a household where, you know, you didn't have parents who went to Penn State and took you to Penn State games, and you didn't you didn't have any sort of, uh, you know, legacy connection to the school, then, yeah, you arrive at Penn State. You don't see any sign of the guy. His name's on the library. But you you, you can see how in someone's world who comes from that background, they wouldn't have any frame of reference for Joe Paterno. And for those people, he's just not relevant. And, the, and they've, you know, and, and the people who are aware of the history of Penn State and Penn State football, a lot of them uh, have just moved on. So the, the job of a good reporter is to kind of not be part of the story. As a reporter, though, when you're doing a story that's this heavy, how hard is it to remain unbiased and, and not have emotions as you're doing the story? Well, look, I think that, you know, I've, I've had a, uh, just through the work that I've done at ESPN, I've had an opportunity to, to work on a number of stories that um, deal with uh, the sexual assaults of minors. And uh, that is always a uh, difficult subject matter. And I think one of the more poignant uh, moments in this story was when we heard from uh, Aaron Fisher, who was the very first uh person abused by Sandusky to come forward. He was 15 when he made the courageous decision to tell his story first to uh, state psychiatrist and then uh, ultimately to the state police. And it was Aaron coming forward that led to the investigation that brought everything down. And, um, you know, so, you know, hearing from people like that, uh, you know, you, you, it's 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 heavy subject matter, and you just want to treat people like that with respect, and um, and hopefully present it in a way where you can convey the severity of what happened without going over the line and being uh, exploitive in any way. Um, and then, you know, just interviewing Jerry Sandusky was a completely different dynamic. That he, 
well, there were limitations in terms of just how we interviewed him. He, he had to call us from prison. We were sitting in his lawyer's office. The, the phone calls could only last 15 minutes. And, and then it, it, said, 15, it said it's a collect call from Jerry Sandusky, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then after the 15-minute phone call, there, there was a 45-minute waiting period until he could call again. And we never were sure if he was going to call again. So ultimately, we wound, we wound up speaking with him three times that day and then a, a fourth time. So I had an hour to speak with the guy. And uh, that's just a completely different animal uh, as far as interviews go. Um, Jerry was very... In his very first phone call to us, it was clear to me he was reading from a list of talking points. And, you know, after our phone call, he shared with somebody who put it out on social media that that we attacked him. Uh, I don't think we attacked him. He he was trying to read a list of talking points. And that's not an interview. I just I knew I had to take control of the interview and start asking him questions or else the thing was going to go south. And we only had 15 minutes. So. Uh, you know, I, I stopped him. I interrupted him and I did what I think a, a reporter should do in those circumstances. So every interview was different and uh, and sort of brought up a different set of emotions. Uh, but, yeah, you just you just try to go into all of them being fair. Well, we're sure you treated it with the same respect and, and tasteful approach that you do all of these very difficult but necessary subjects to cover. Uh, there'll also be a written piece out that you'll accompany with the E60 piece. It'll be another ESPN platform. Everybody should check it out Monday night, even if it's not the easiest topic to watch. It's an important issue to be aware of. John, thanks so much for the time. We always appreciate you with what you do in the work and the time you give us to talk about it. Gentlemen, thanks so much. I appreciate your interest. All right, Jeff, let's keep it going. The Sixers get underway in the playoffs tomorrow night. Who better to talk to than our man from the Philadelphia Inquirer, Keith Pompey? Keith, are you here to calm our nerves or set us on fire like the rest of the city? <laughs> I'm not telling. I'm not telling. Uh, you know, it's, it's weird, man. It's, it's, I keep going back and forth because when you look at the playoffs, you think about last year when they played the Atlanta Hawks. Everyone was like, yep, they're going to the Eastern Conference Finals because of what they did to the Atlanta Hawks in the regular season. And it just didn't end up that way. So it's all about adjustments. However, I think for the Sixers to win, you know, there's a lot of, like, things that they have to get right. Like James Harden has to be James Harden, right? Um, They have to be able to get some stops. But when you look, when you look at this Toronto team, it's just a bad matchup for me because Toronto throws a lot of guys who are anywhere from 6'8 to 6'10 in that rotation. They're very interchangeable and they grab rebounds. And you look at the Sixers and they're one of the worst rebounding teams in the NBA. So although it's all about matchups and it's all about adjustments, you know, it's, it's hard if James Harden continues to struggle and if you're not getting boards. And then what they do is they're going to they're going to devise all these schemes to Joel. And my question is, Joel says he's a willing passer, but is he going to get frustrated and try to do it on his on by himself? And what happens is he's going to turn the ball over left and right. So although a lot of people are saying, hey, this is the playoffs, things are different. If James Harden doesn't step up and if they don't get rebounds, they're losing in the first round. How important are game one and game two because of Matisse's non-availability or unavailability for games three and four? 
Oh, they're very huge. I mean, especially I, I think that for the Sixers, game one is huge for, for a lot of reasons, because if they lose that first game and especially if Harden doesn't play well, people are going, like, oh, here we go again. Look at this. They messed up the trade and they're going, like, oh, we're losing. So games one and two are very vital. I, I think that, you know, for the Sixers case, a stake, they have to split, at least split the first two games. Like, you got to win at least one. And it would be a whole lot better for them to win both of them. But, you know, I, I think, like, game one, if they lose that, I mean, let's face it, we're all from this area. You know, just, uh, you know, we're all from here. We know how the people are. And what's going to happen is, is if they lose game one, like, uh, I told you, I told you he, he couldn't produce in the playoffs. And here we go again. So it's just going to be the doom and gloom. When you have a story about that today that people should check out in the Inquirer about James Harden and him not feeling the pressure. But look, I mean, Nick Nurse is going to double Joel Embiid. And so the question is, can people hit shots? Now, when Thibel's not in the lineup in three and four, you'll have Nyang and, and Danny Green there. But if Thibel's in, like, Harden's going to have to knock down some shots. What are you thinking from these other players that aren't James Harden and Joel Embiid right now going into this series? You know, I, you're right. I think uh, the, if you want to say to me, like, the X factor is, you know, I, I say Matisse Thibel, not excuse me, I say um, Tyrese Maxey or Danny Green. You know, Danny Green, the last game, I felt like the Sixers wasted a great performance where he hits six threes. He had 18 points. He was solid on a defensive end. But they need to get that from him, you know, again. Because, you know, it made you not think about Matisse. As much as that may sound crazy, it made you not think about Matisse because of the way he played. So, yes, you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to get George Niang to knock down some shots. But Tobias and Tyrese Maxey are going to also have to play well. Now, here's the one thing I will say about um, Matisse Thibel. And this is something that you guys know. You guys pay attention to it. Matisse Thibel has been auditioning for fourth quarter minutes for the last month, right? So just because Matisse Thibel is their lockdown and their best perimeter defender, that doesn't always mean that he's going to be on, on closing out games because what Doc does is he looks at him, he sees how he's playing offensively. If, if, if he's not making shots and teams are like doubling off of him, leaving him to double, then he's not going to be in the game late. So, while everyone is saying, yes, yes, we miss him, we miss him, is one of those things where there's not a guarantee that he's going to be in there in the fourth. So that, that that's something people have to you know think about. All right. So my biggest concern, other than Matisse not playing in game three and four, is who exactly is going to guard and stop Pascal Siakam? You know what? It, it, that's a, a great question. Um, I, I think what they're going to try, I think initially, initially, just me, right, based off the starting lineup, a guy like Tobias Harris, you want to throw on him. But then quickly you're going to take him off and you're going to put Joel Embiid on him, right? I, I think Joel is, is their best defense against Pascal because I don't know if, Tobias is athletic enough to stay in front of him, right? So I think it's going to have to be Joel, which is going to open up things for other people. Because if you notice, what they typically do is you have Joel guarding him, 
and then you bring Precious in, right? So Joel is guarding him, and then Precious is way wide open in the perimeter somewhere, draining threes because people aren't rotating, you know what I mean, or making their guys. So it's going to have to be Joel. I think the rotation defense that you mentioned is going to be huge. We saw a lot of wide open shots on poor rotation down the stretch at the end of the season. I got to ask you, you've got two big name coaches, Doc, with the longer resume, obviously. Nick Nurse with the title. Uh, At times it has looked like Nick Nurse has outmaneuvered Doc, and Doc recently has not really liked being questioned about where his decisions are. What do you think from the coaches going into this series in the matchup? You know, I you know I, I think that you know Doc is uh, I, I like Doc as a coach, right? I, I, I do, but I, sometimes I think that it's not Doc's fault that James Harden came in here missing shots. It's not Doc's fault that you know that either their bench are guys who are thirty and above, or or guys who are young, but they can only do one thing. They're not like versatile, so that's the, the problem we we get in. Um, now, when you come down and you talk about a guy like Nick Nurse, I think Nick Nurse is a very underrated coach, maybe because he's in Toronto, right? Um, the thing about Nick Nurse, even when he was the assistant coach for the Raptors, he always devised a plan that frustrated Joel Embiid. You know, Joel Embiid has struggled in the past against the Raptors because of the doubles and, and the way they keep mixing up the defenses. You don't know where they're coming from. So I think that Nick is a great coach to go up against the Sixers. Um, but I do think the pressure is on Doc just because of people are like looking at him and they're saying, look, you have this Sixers team with two future Hall of Famers. What are you going to do? But let's be honest. This is probably the worst matchup for the Sixers, unless you want to say the Brooklyn Nets were. So I think that, you know, if they lose, a lot of people are going to come down hard on Doc. But this is just a poor matchup for them because, you know, we're, we're talking about you got um, Matisse Seibel can't play. You know, you got DeAndre Jordan as the backup. You know, the argument who's between who some DeAndre would say can't Paul play. Reed. Yeah, huh? <laughs> who some would say can't play at times. Yeah, yeah, some can't play. And then you got you got Furkan Korkmaz, who's extremely inconsistent. Shake Milton inconsistent. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, you got the Sixers starters going up against all these dudes coming off the bench. So it's, it's a tough matchup for the Sixers, if you ask me. James Harden has gone out of his way to say that there's no pressure on him. Is there pressure on him and is he really feeling it? Because nobody says that unless there is. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he's been saying that since he's been saying that since he got here. Like, hey, you got something to bring on the like right, so so yeah, there's pressure on them. I mean, there is because I mean, when you look at it, and, and I'll be honest with you, what do you expect the guy to say? Like, you know, you you expect these guys like, oh man, I I really gotta I really gotta do this, and if if, if I don't do it, then people then then they're right. No, you're gonna go in there and say like, yo, this is easy peasy. Like, I'm just gonna play the game, right? So, but there is pressure because you know that's why I said it's so important for them to win the first game. And it's very important for him to play well for them to win the first game because all of a sudden, you know, there's going to be a, the, the, the national storyline is going to be, uh-oh, James Harden, he's messing up again. So there is a lot of pressure on him, a lot. Yeah, a lot. Well, we're gonna- hey, look, we, we are not going to ask you for your prediction. 
you get to do that in the paper. People got to see it there. We got a minute left, and I just want we had Doug Glanville on today. It is Jackie Robinson Day. Jackie Robinson wasn't just a man who broke barriers in baseball, but was also the first nationally syndicated black columnist. What does it mean to you? What does Jackie Robinson mean to you? I mean, Jackie Robinson means the world to me. I mean, you look at it, you know, I'm a guy who, I mean, everybody knows about the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, about, you know, uh, everything that he did. And, but the thing is, was he was like, uh, you know, he was well-educated. He was um, humble. I mean, he did a lot of things. I mean, he made a lot of right decisions and it's not just for, you know, uh, black people. I, I think he stood up for all mankind and a lot of different minorities, all peoples of, of color. You know, and, and the thing is, the fact that he was the first syndicated columnist, you know, that says a lot, man. It, it says a lot. It says a lot about who he is. I mean, let's face it. Some people may argue that Jackie Robinson wasn't the most athletic at that time of, of black athletes or minority athletes. But at the same time, he was the right person for the job. And that means a lot. But I will tell you this. The Raptors in six. That's my prediction. Oh, we got the prediction. Wow. Uh, that's uh, that's going to make some fans nervous. Keith Pompey, we will follow it all uh, at Pompey on Sixers in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Locked on Sixers. You take it easy, man. Have a good one. All right, peace. And, and uh, hell to pit. <laughs> Had to get it in. Hell pit. <laughs> right. You know, it's so important to honor Jackie Robinson today and, and every day, quite frankly. He is so important not just to the sport that you and I love, but he's important to our society. And as we learned, I think, from talking to Doug, he's important outside the United States. The whole world was watching. His impact was far outside that of the game. You heard that from Keith. You hear that from other people. And I'm glad that we were able to do a little justice having that conversation today. Jeff, any final thoughts before we say goodbye? I think it's important we keep having those conversations. We'll keep doing that right here. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.